Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. You're listening to, what is this? Witches, Whiskey, and Wit with Jason Banky. I'm Jason. I am your host. Thank you for being here with me. I almost forgot the name of this podcast. It used to be the Raise the Horns podcast. Then I quit podcasting for, gosh, like two years. And then I came back to it and decided that I would change the name to something that was more kind of alliteration and stuff. And we ended up with Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. Sometimes I call the show Whiskey, Witches, and Wit, putting the emphasis on the whiskey. Today's whiskey is rye whiskey from Sonoma Distilling Company, which is why there could still be wit for a while until I get deep into the cups on the show. Today's guest is going to be Ryan Smith. I'm going to be talking to him in just a minute. Sorry that we were not live last week. We'll be back probably live next week, though. So busy, don't have guests lined up. It is Samhain season, which is the busiest season for most of us. It is definitely a crazy time. It definitely has been a crazy time for me. I hope that you vote as we record. It's October 16th. We're just a couple of weeks out from Election Day, and there's so much writing on this election. I hope you're doing your political magic to manifest some change. So we're going to get right to it. I'm super excited to have Ryan here on the show. Ryan and I have known each other for like what seven or eight years maybe because you're like now. that yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it it's longer than it feels and i think it's because as we get older like time accelerates so much faster <laughs> well welcome yeah. to the show really i'm really happy to have you here you are only the second non-witch to be on the podcast in its second iteration. So, congratulations. Yeah, yeah thank you. It's, it's an honor to be uh, to be on. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we added a sound effect there. <laughs> Speaking of sound effects, if you hear voices in the background and you're like, what is that really quiet voice I hear in the background? In the era of COVID, my wife is also having a meeting right now online. So my microphone is really good. So we could get some bleed into. So just warning you, if you hear an attractive feminine voice, it is probably Ari. It is probably not Ryan or I. Though, you know, (laughs) that'd be fine too. So I I guess where to start is, like how would you describe yourself as a heathen? Would Would that be the word that you would use? Yeah, I mean, that word works. Uh, I'd also say, like, Norse pagan. I mean, uh, from where I sit, the two terms can be used in a similar way. I know there's some people that get a bit more hung up on it, but, you know, 
I go by either. Right. Well, I mean, it's like how we label ourselves in the larger pagan community sometimes is so contentious these days, especially. You know, like, no, I'm not a pagan. I'm, I'm a polytheist. And, you know, no, I'm not a witch. I'm a Wiccan. Or, no, I'm a Wiccan and not, you know, or I'm a witch and not a Wiccan. And, you know, it's just there's always seems to be, like, so much worry. So I just always want to make sure that I get it right. How did you come to Norse paganism instead of, like, another pagan tradition? Um. Well, actually, I did start out with a like, you know, way back when I was in, like, junior high, high school, like, watching, like, History Channel documentaries about Halloween and, <clears throat> excuse me, like, grabbing what I could get from the local metaphysical store from Llewellyn. Um, so I was kind of sort of doing the whole, like, you know, teenage uh, Wicca witch kind of thing um, that I wouldn't be entirely surprised if a lot of people have gone through at this point in some way or another um, compared to like, you know, like 20 or something years ago. Um, (laughs) And uh, the internet's definitely helping there. But uh, I just sort of like did that for a bit and just sort of was in a generally like eclectic uh, pagan direction. And um, it just sort of explored around a lot. Like I did a little bit of time with the ADF uh, druidry as well for like you know like a couple of years before um, I started studying like Norse practice specifically and there was just something about it that at least at first like really sort of jumped out as kind of fitting for where it was I was coming from like particularly because you've got all like the different sagas and stuff and there's a pretty um, clearly like articulated sense of philosophy to it I mean, kind of. Um, right. So, like, I guess that was sort of one of the things that uh, led me in, along with being, like, a massive history nerd. And, yeah, I've probably, like, a practicing heathen for, like, 13 years now, give or take. So when you were, when you were like, attracted to it, were you brought in through the – from the Edas and the stories and the mythology or – was there like that one 101 book or something that really checked all the boxes or was it just kind of discovering the deities that were involved and then learning about the culture? Well, I did have like a particular um, moment because I had sort of known something about the culture because I've been like really much more than uh, into a lot of like early medieval history um, So I was kind of aware. And then there was like a particular I think it was like a fairy tradition ritual that I was at where I had a very particularly ex- intense experience during an ancestor invocation. And then from there went exploring more specifically in the Norse direction, starting a lot with the Eddas and such. I mean, like there's not that many intro Norse pagan books out right now. And there were even less then. So yeah, I'm always. It was definitely fasc- kind of a flow yeah. through the saga. I'm always fascinated thing. by like what book people start with because for a lot of pagan people, there's usually a book involved somewhere at the beginning of what they do, and sometimes they're embarrassed by that book, or sometimes they 
hold on to it really strongly, especially some of like the really dated Wicca books. I mean, I'll, I'll own it that like my first like pagan book generally was like Teen Witch by Silver Ravenwald. Um, wow. As I'm sure is the case with a lot of people at this point. But, um, and, but I mean, I think that approaching heathen practice from already having done a lot of different like eclectic pagan stuff was ultimately like more help or having a better understanding of heathenry once I got into it because I wasn't like jumping straight from some denomination of Christianity or something and trying to impose uh, like a particular sort of like God, Jesus, and the devil sort of order. Um, and there's like a certain tendency among some people in like even practice to sort of do that. Um, so I think coming at it from kind of that longer, like through oh, Wiccan and then eclectic practice really was better in the long run. So starting in the more general pagan community, when you kind of switched to heathenry as a primary focus, was it hard to find people to practice with? I know that when I lived in Michigan, no matter what you did, if you identified as a pagan, you all kind of, we all kind of got together and did stuff because there just weren't a lot of us. But in the Bay Area, in California, it's a little different in that everybody seems to be really good at like finding their very particular specific group. Yeah, and and that's something I've definitely noticed about the Bay Area. I first, like, grew up and started doing pagan practice in San Diego, and there it was like, you know, like you said, in Michigan, it was everybody just sort of sticking together. Um, And maybe there's, you know, those three or four people over there who are doing, like, a Druid thing or, like, a specifically British traditional thing. Um, But it's not like, you know, the Bay Area where you have a lot of active groups of all different traditions. When I was starting out, I was uh, first, like, studied with a Dinah Paxton's group in Berkeley. Um, Before then, like, after a couple of years, like, going off to do uh, my own thing with other people I'd met at Con, as well as through that, and through, like, some other local pagan groups. It is like the Bay Area. It's like it's really strange. Everything is very different about it when it comes to paganism versus the rest of the country. I don't think that a lot of us who live here really understand that, uh, especially those who grew up in this area, uh, because that's all they've ever known is this gigantic pagan culture with all of these different spinoffs and stuff. When, When you moved to the Bay. Was there anything that surprised you when you would go to like a big pagan gathering? Um, mostly that there were a lot of like almost each like significant tradition had a fairly well organized, to varying degrees, group that was like present at things like the Pagan Alliance Festival, um, had people at Con, and really was that Panthea Con. I mean, um. <clears throat> And was really like, uh, and were like, at least on some level, talking to each other and sharing notes. Um, and I mean, like you said, it's like it's not like anywhere else really that I've seen. I mean, maybe 
like you could say that there's something similar going on in like London, but right, you know, London's like absolutely enormous. So, um, and they have their own thing going on in like you know the British pagan scene that runs in its own direction as well. But like it is definitely really different and really interesting. You get so many of these different groups crossing paths in the Bay Area. Um, like I can't really think of anywhere else, at least in North America, that's like that. I hear allegedly Minneapolis is kind of like that, but I've only been there for like little bits and pieces. I've never like camped out there for three or four weeks to see if that's really true. But apparently they used to call it Paganistan or something like that because there were just so many <laughs> people there, which I, I always thought was, was kind of funny. But heathenry... I've noticed in the last couple of years, I think really the last 10, that there has been an explosion in people interested in heathenry. However, at the same time, there's often a wariness that comes when you hear that someone is interested in heathenry. One of the things I love about you, and you know this, that you are like my checker. Like when somebody asks like to write at Pathios Pagan or something about heathenry, I ask you first, like, if there are any warning signs about this person, is there anything um, that I should know? Is it challenging? And we'll talk about some of this stuff because what I love about your book is that it addresses these things uh, in an open, honest way. So people don't get fooled into joining bad groups. Uh, But when you're out about, is there ever any wariness amongst, Wiccans and general pagans uh, when you when you talk about heathenry or identify as heathen? I think much more in, in like not as much recently I think much more in the past like say five ten years ago definitely I mean I know that from like when I was first starting in like you know the late 90s early 2000s in San Diego there was like a heathen group that was known to be practicing in the area, but nobody from the rest of the pagan community like ever talked to them. And like when I asked once, like I got a very blunt they're a bunch of skinheads, don't do don't go near them kind of response. Um and I think that what was the case up until, you know, the last five, ten years, which is also when we see this explosion in interest, is there was kind of much more of a tendency within the community to like, I guess you could say like let sleeping dogs fly is probably the way they would put it. Um, or the way they would have described it as sort of, you know, live and let live. There's those groups over there that are doing that thing that looks and sounds really racist and kind of fascist, but we're not going to bother them because there this sort of was sort of this general, like, I don't know, almost kind of a fear of not wanting to rock the boat or be seen as, you know, harming the community or what have you. Um, But I think, like, within, like, the past decade or so, that's changed. Like, a lot of it is because people started, like, agitating around that. And I think also, like, social media has been enormous for the development of inclusive heathenry because it gave people who... Wanted to organize something, the tools to do so outside of the existing organizations who were pretty strongly like encouraging that whole don't make a fuss 
sort of approach. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I mean, you, I think, have been sort of one of the vanguards of being out, being involved in the pagan community that's not a hotbed of Nazis and racism and saying, you know, that there are heathens that are, and most of us, and I think most heathens are actually not Nazis and skinheads and racists. I think most of them are pretty good people, but you've been like really kind of out there. But one of the things that's always kind of worries me, um, especially amongst some of these racist groups is that they use really coded language to describe who they are that on the outside sometimes doesn't feel racist. And then you use, they use that kind of language to draw people in uh, to be part of a worse agenda. So there's a couple of different kinds of heathenry, and I thought it might be useful for you to kind of go over some of them, uh, type, you know, words mm-hmm. like folkish, uh, those different sort of types of heathenry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as far as the, like, uh, the biggest like division that exists in heathenry, you've got broadly speaking all the inclusive groups um, who uh, are especially now like very good about upfront saying this is an inclusive group. We do not tolerate racism or bigotry or what have you. Um, I mean, you still want to like you know ask around to be sure because there are definitely some groups who have said that they support those positions without, you know, actually like actually enforcing them. But for the most part, I'd say that most heathen groups you'll run into are probably, uh, like you said, on sort of part of that broad inclusive umbrella. And they'll also much more clearly advertise than they, they used to, um, that they are an inclusive group. Um, the other big one are the folkish, um, who have, as of, like, 2016, been labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a white nationalist movement um, and are basically a bunch of pretty Nazis. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and they'll do the whole thing of, like, saying, oh, we're, like, the ancestral religion, we are, like, the natively European practice and all this stuff about, like, you know, coming home and this is in your roots and all this other stuff that sounds on the surface not so bad and and to an extent like those kind of broader ideas of you know digging back into your heritage and stuff are like a common thing throughout paganism so at first blush like folkish heathen groups saying well this is about understanding our heritage and our ancestors doesn't necessarily look bad until you then start poking around and go, oh, the way you guys are defining ancestors is using words like white and Aryan um, mm-hmm. or really broad, vague terms like peoples of the North, um, which means apparently whatever it is that the organization in question wants it to mean, uh, as long as it's white. Um, and yeah. the more you dig into like focus heathenry, the more it becomes clear that this is a thing that's basically some warmed over um, like Nazi white nationalist mysticism that's got a bit more of a pagan gloss added on top so that they can snag people that don't know what to look for. Um, and, and the thing that's also important to mention is that the d- distinction between like inclusive heathenry and folkish heathenry isn't just in that the folkish are 
basically like revamping a bunch of Nazi bullshit. It's also that as far as the bulkish are concerned, uh, the gods are these sort of bloodborne archetypes that are manifestations of the like collective unconscious of the Germanic peoples. And if all the like so-called peoples of the North die out, then the gods die with them. Whereas inclusive heathens are much more in the direction of the gods are the gods. Um, we also honored like the spirits around us called like the Vitir or the light, um, do stuff with the dead and all this other stuff. And the gods are gods. They're bigger than us. They created the world or at least this particular world. And it's a very different view that is much more in line with the rest of paganism than the Folkish are. Yeah, that, that sounds more like what we all believe as pagans, right? You know, the gods are the yeah. gods for the most part. And instead of, you know, and there are certainly pagans who disagree with that, but, you know, as broadly speaking, when your book really goes into some of these things about how to identify some of these groups or what the warning signs are. And you've done a pretty good job describing what folks even do and believe, but are there any warning signs that you think that you should share about people who are interested in heathen groups? Um, one that actually will come up that is, that's a particular, like you could say dog whistle is if a group does not explicitly like say we do not tolerate bigotry in all the following forms, but instead something like says something more like we accept a broad range of political opinion, um, or something kind of weaselly like that. Um, that sounds kind of inclusive, but isn't as explicit. Um, like one thing I will say that is like a very tiny bit of silver lining about the like last four years in particular is as much as, you know, Donald Trump is a massive shithead, he has also emboldened all these different, like, white nationalist groups of all kinds to be a lot more upfront and open about what they're doing. So even though there are a lot of those, like, very vague, like, playing word games kind of folks groups out there, there's quite a few more that have felt pretty bold to be like, no, yeah, we totally recommend that you read Julius Evola and study fascist thought and get ready to fight for the white race kind of thing. Um, it's true. You you bring that up about that kind of sea change with Trump in 2016. And, you know, there's always been racism. There's always been Nazis. There's always been assholes and people who work against the greater good. But for a long time, it at least felt like there was a gentleman's agreement that you didn't wear your racism publicly, like you kept your hood in the closet. And now the hoods are coming back out. And it's it's really different than what, what I remember my country being. Oh, yeah. I, it's, and I saw like a similar thing happening because of Brexit in the UK. But I think it's, I don't think it's just because of like, you know, the Tangerine Man, though. I think it's also to an extent the like one of the biggest steps forward for inclusive heathenry was releasing declaration 127 which was a joint statement by i think it's something like 200 groups now from all over the world saying we specifically are agreeing that the officer folk assembly who are probably like the worst offenders when it comes to promoting folkish ideology 
are not welcome in our communities. We do not consider them a part of even practice, and we want nothing to do with them. And that happened like about two months before Trump got elected. And up to that point, you had a lot of growing agitation. So I think, I think part of it was they felt emboldened to say what they really wanted to say. But I think there was also an element of that they, like, the game was clearly up. Like, people weren't buying the old fan dance anymore and the sort of unspoken, let's just let this sleeping dog lie and ignore the fact that you hang a Confederate flag over your altar. Gross. Was not holding anymore. So I think there was also that element closer to home. I think so, I remember. I mean, it's not just... what... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, guys. It, you know, there's like a delay no matter what you do on these shows. So you end up talking over your guest periodically, but go right ahead. I don't ever mean to talk over you. Oh, okay. Um, thank you. Well, then, um, but yeah, I think that, like, as I mean, I'm not going to, like, claim that fascists openly doing their thing is a good thing. It's not. It's definitely, like, not a good sign of the times and maybe sort of, in some ways, sort of preview of coming events over the next decade, unfortunately. But it isn't necessarily a bad thing for them to lose one of their more effective recruiting tools of being able to play those kind of, like, word games because they're being under – they're facing pressure – and opposition in spite of doing so. Like, I mean, it definitely, on one hand, shows they were feeling their oath, but I think it's also because we were putting enough of a squeeze to them that the ones who were feeling more aggressive were like, well, let's ditch this shit. It's not working anymore. And, you know, that has denied them a lot of people. Well, I remember just, you know, five or six years ago, you had some of uh, these folkish writers writing at places like witches and pagans and things, because they had done a pretty good job of sort of chameleoning themselves into the greater pagan community and not like being out and out racists, you know, like it was always that sort of under the surface racism. And since then, I think for the most part that those people have been removed from our bigger spaces, but they also have their own big private space too. It's almost like they exist as this sort of undercurrent within paganism. Well, I think that's definitely true. There is a, they've definitely been able to carve out their own particular spaces and they do have their own ways of still drawing people into those spaces. I mean, they're still a thing, so they're clearly able to still find people um, that they can prey on. And I do want to emphasize prey on because these groups ultimately tend to be pretty self-destructive in the long term as well. So, you know, just because the white nationalist line might be sounding good and feeling appealing doesn't mean it's going to end well. I mean, and I think that the fact that they've been read out of most of the mainstream pagan community has put a dent in their ability to recruit because the only other places they can reliably find people are in sort of the broader like pond scum that is the far right and 4chan and places <laughs> like that right. and they're I mean this is a, like, a thing that they don't like having brought up is 
the rest of their like political allies don't actually like them very much. Like you, cause most of them are either some form of like militant. There are no God kind of atheists or they're like particularly like nasty variants of Christianity that think the crusades didn't go far enough. So those don't really play well with a bunch of pseudo-pagan mystics that even Hitler mocked in his time. Now, people like often pick on heathenry as, you know, well, this is the one with the racism in it, but a lot of movements that are sort of built around a cultural identity can have those moments as well. Uh, I've seen it in Hellenic circles, especially over the last couple of years. But what is it that you think draws these people to the sort of this gross and corrupt version of deities that we love, like Thor and Freya and Odin. I, I think the biggest reason is because the racists um, of the different like racist far right pagan groups that exist, the first ones to actually get properly organized were the heathen ones. And they sort of got their start in like the mid seventies, um, piggybacking off of other existing like elements of what you could call the white right that was already running around. So, and there's and there's also because of those sort of origins, there's a sort of like tendency to, at least then, for the people that were going to racist heathenry to be drawn to it because they were looking for gods that could not possibly be considered Jewish in any way, um, which is why Jesus is right out. Um, <laughs> and they made, like, and Stephen McNallan and the AFA are, again, like, sort of at the center of this particular story, and they made, like, a deliberate effort to try to recruit and organize as much as they could. But, like, I honestly think that as of now, they like they probably don't represent any larger slice of heathenry than other similar racist elements do in other practices. Like maybe theirs is a bit bigger and more visible because they've had like 30 years of bringing people together. But they also have sort of been pretty stable in how big their organization really is. So I don't think they are as pervasive as they try to portray themselves. And it really is just a question of they were one of the first ones to get organized and propagandizing and all that. One of the things you brought, you mentioned Stephen McNallan, and it irritates me greatly that he's still published by mainstream presses. Usually oh, under yeah. pseudonym, like, but yeah, but he's still being published. Oh yeah, and also like Stephen Flowers, also known as Edward Thorson, like yeah. I mean, one particular one that drove me up the wall with McNallan was the religion newswire has done and they're sort of like, you know, the religious news version of the Associated Press almost. And they've run like a couple pieces that talk a lot of nice stuff or downplay the obvious racism in the AFA. And I know for a fact that I was like contacted by one of the reporters at one point who was like, Hey, what can you give me on this? And I was like, here's like, you know, a couple pages of links, go ahead and look, and they didn't use any of it. That's frustrating. Really, really frustrating. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned I mean, flowers 
and and McNallan, are there other writers that you suggest people stay away from? Um, Michael Moynihan's also one who is one to watch out for. Um, like he kind of leans much more into sort of a countercultural like vibe with what he does. Um, like he's the guy who wrote that what's it, Lords of Chaos, that book about uh, black metal, which oh, basically yeah. was him just shooting the shit with Barbara Gernos and not much else. Um, <laughs> but like, he's definitely one to look out for, particularly because he's also good at that whole, like hiding his true like politics in a lot of word games kind of thing. Um, and another one who's actually starting to like, make waves is a Brian Wilson. Um, Cause his, like he's just been like prolifically self publishing stuff through Amazon uh, lately and trying to make some waves that his stuff is very like basically McNallan with 21st century language. Like it, no it's, it's kind of yeah. interesting that there's like these people that keep coming up trying to say, here's my newest spin on like, this folk achievement thing, and it all keeps sounding exactly the same. Like for all the talk about, hey, we're reaching back to the ancients to get this to the ancestors to get this like incredible inspiration for what like prod this forward. They really aren't being terribly imaginative about it. So on a little like happier topic. I really loved your book, and I, I mean, I really did. When I write a blurb for a book, I will always actually make sure to read it, which is why I don't write a whole lot of blurbs. But I really, really <laughs> loved your book because it felt like the book that I wanted to read 25 years ago when I think the only sort of introduction to sort of heathenry was – the Rites of Odin, maybe that was was a Llewellyn book. Mm. It's the only one I remember ever seeing. What was what was your reason for writing the book? Uh, was it to to give people that entryway into inclusive heathenry, or was there a little bit else involved? I mean, it basically was to cover that like hole that was missing. That I mean, there are a couple of other good books out there, like Patricia Lefayville, mm-hmm. uh Guide to Heathenry is also a really good one out from Llewellyn. I mean, there's philosophical differences between how I approach it and how she does, but uh, I would never, like, question her inclusive credentials um, for her commitment. Um, those are both, like, very clear in her work and in the book as well. Um, what I was trying to go at with mine was not just to like give that kind of introduction, but to also like really think through from like a standpoint of what's a good way to talk about this that focuses on the needs of the person who's reading this first and then build out for from there and to talk about it in a way that is very much meant to be of this moment and of this time that we're still reaching back into uh, the ancient past for inspiration and ideas, but we're also then taking that and we're much more consciously putting it in a modern frame. Um, And also like putting in as much like anti-fascism throughout the whole thing. 
Um. <laughs> I have never written a one-on-one book. Um, is it is it more difficult to start at the beginning after you've been doing something for 15 years? I, I definitely would say so. Like, it was, like, this, this book would not be anywhere near as accessible if not for all of the people who helped out in the process, like, particularly my partner, Patricia, who regularly was like, what does this mean for somebody who doesn't know the sagas backward and forward? Right. Um and it is definitely, like, it's really challenging to take things and then step back and go, okay, I need to talk about this. Like, I don't know, like, the person receiving this stuff doesn't know all these things, but still also gives them the agency to explore beyond what it is I'm giving them. Like, One of the, it's yeah. challenging, but rewarding. One of the things I loved about the book the most, because I'm a nerd, there's a long section in the back called The Origins of the Pagan Revival. And it's really the only real history of modern Norse paganism that I've seen in a book. There's a couple, there's some journal articles that are accessible for hundreds of dollars if you buy the, you know, whatever volume it came out in and stuff that sort of talk about these things. But there's never been anything like a triumph of the moon for Norse paganism. This your little section in there is the most accessible history that I've ever seen on modern Norse paganism. How did that section come about, and how long and how difficult was that to write? Um, well, that one happened in part because there are some, like, brief descriptions of, like, modern, like, where modern heathenry comes from. Like, Paxton does a little bit of it in her book, Essential Ossetrue. Um, and I know, like, Selda Gunderson did before that in um, Teutonic Magic. But they, I mean, what they were writing was not properly speaking history. It was more like, here's the narrative that we as a community at that time has agreed is sort of the narrative for where this comes from. Um, and it's also one that really deliberately was trying to get as far away from the rest of the pagan community and particularly like the counterculture of the 60s and 70s as they possibly could. Um, so like my motivation was partly because I was seeing these other approaches that have been done and have like received like formal training in history and the writing of history that I was like, okay, we have to actually do this right and ask what are the other things that are going on as well? Like what are the other influences? And um, it helped that like the people that I talked to in like Norway and Sweden were like very like willing to help out and offer information and their stuff is also pretty accessible. Um, at least as far as the sources they pointed me at. Um, and but there was also like the challenges of that some of the people who are figures in that history are people who definitely were not going to be talking to me for this book. So <laughs> there are some people who don't like you. And I I don't get it myself, but I think that says much more about them than it does you, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was trying to get a, a more honest accounting of what 
and where this came from and one that also gets away from being too heavy on here's this big name who dropped this big thing kind of thing and much more well why do you suddenly have starting in like the 60s and 70s these people getting interested in pre-christian spirituality and mysticism and magic like why does that happen and going a bit further on that because i think that understanding that modern context will also help us like face the challenges that are coming next because if the same pressures that helped make paganism happen in the modern era are sorry rambled a bit um but basically, like, the same pressures that help make paganism happen in the modern era are only going to be getting more intense over especially the next 10 years and beyond. We like rambling answers on this show because it just gives me a chance to drink more whiskey. So never, never <laughs> feel bad about long answers. That's, that's how the show is set up for the long answers. So the book has been out... It's not. It's not quite been a year, but it's it's close. I think. Looking back on it, and I realize you actually wrote this two or three years ago because this is how books work. Is there anything in your book that you would change or that you didn't think came out right? Um. I mean, by the time I, I mean, there were definitely like a couple places where I could have made particular points, like talking about like the Icelandic um, sigil magic system, known as Galdrastafir, or some other places where I could have like spelled things out a bit more explicitly. Um, like, there's definitely a few points where like I went a little bit and gone, oh, I could have used one more path of proofreading before I sent it over the wall, but um. I mean, I, I think I'm mostly happy with where it's at. Like, I know that, like, with people that I've talked to who have gotten the book and uh, said they enjoyed it, the only, like, really consistent critique is, why did you put this whole, like, practically its own book at the end about community organizing? Um, <laughs> but um, to, to which, like, you know, my answer to that is always, because there's maybe two other books on how to do this in paganism and no one's going to read that stuff unless you put it in the intro book or they're already well involved and want to take things to the next level. I would suggest too, that when you're kind of getting out of the witchcraft world and you want to work with others, knowing how to put together a community is really important because it's not there and ready made for you. You're always going to find other witches in most large cities, you're going to find a store dedicated to witchcraft. But unless you are in certain parts of Europe, maybe perhaps like a super large city like Chicago or New York, you're not going to find a whole lot of really established heathen groups. I mean, it's, a, it's really kind of a more build-it-do-it-yourself sort of world, I think. Yeah, and there's also the problem of that a lot of the established groups that have been around for a while uh, also happen to be folkish. So it's kind of necessary to give right. people the toolkit so they can go, oh, the one that's down the street has a swastika uh, banner on their front page. I think I'm going to just do my own thing over here. Um, 
but but we're trying to reclaim the swastika. No, no, you're not. No, no, you're not. No, don't. Just don't. <laughs> yeah, that, that's no. done. That's done. Ten million so, people were butchered. While you were song. writing this, not coming back. <laughs> yeah. While you were writing this book, you were mostly going to school and living in Edinburgh, Scotland. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, in Glasgow, right across the way. Yeah. So, did you live mostly in Glasgow or Edinburgh? Uh, mostly in Glasgow. Um, yeah. Nice place. Like, it, it's. It definitely tends not to show up as much on people's radar because it's not as, like, its history is way more recent, like, tiny market town until, like, the 1700s and then turned into, like, the Pittsburgh of the British Isles, almost overnight. (laughs) Right. I love Scotland. I was supposed to be in Scotland two weeks ago, and then COVID got in the way. What was your pagan experience like while you were in Scotland, or were you too busy to have one? Um, I had some of one, um, but you know, writing a book and doing a PhD at the same time is a bit challenging. Um, right. And I was also doing the whole. I'm over in Europe for a while, so I can actually afford to go to all these places on the continent and in the UK. So, but even so, like there is like the like, one thing that I found that was really interesting and different about particularly, like, at least the elements of the British pagan scene that I was in touch with is there is a much greater degree of overlap between pagan stuff and New Age stuff than I would say is the case in, like, say, the United States and Canada, where there feels like there's much more of a clear line of, no, that UFO and chakra stuff goes over here, the witches and horned god goes over here um, mm-hmm. kind of feeling. Um, and, but there's also like a lot of, from like, you know, the people that I interacted with and the places I went to, there's a lot of like local folklore that gets infused into it as well. Like, I mean, it helps that you can do things like hop on a ferry to an island that's like about an hour away from Glasgow. And on the far side, there is like a stone age standing stone circle right there. Um, I I remember driving through Scotland on a whiskey distillery tour because it's Ari and I but you know we're driving and we're passing and our guide's like oh over there there are there's an ancient stone circle you know like it's nothing and we're like please can we stop and pull over let us let us do something there you know and to them it's you know not a big deal in any way uh, shape or form. What was it like living in a place that is pretty connected to your brand of paganism? I think the biggest thing that really impacted things in the book as well as in my practice is that Scotland is only like, you know, ten five or ten degrees latitude south of where like most of Sweden and Norway are. So it doesn't quite get the whole like midnight sun effect, at least around like Glasgow and Edinburgh. But you definitely get this whole thing going on of 
it's June and high summer, and the sun is up until 11.30 p.m. and is going to rise again at, like, 3 in the morning, um, which then, like, swings wildly in the opposite direction to, like, it's the week of the winter solstice, and it is, like, pitch black by 4 o'clock, and you're not going to be seeing daylight until, like, 9.30 or 10 the following morning. Um, and, like, actually, like, experiencing that was really, like, I'd say that was really the biggest thing more than anything else is just having that experience of, wow, this is really, like, the night is coming and daylight is going or, like, the sun is coming back and it's really coming back. Like, Ari and I are super cheap, that, so every time, yeah. Yeah, and Ari and I are super cheap, so every time we go to the UK, it's always in September, like, right when most of the tourist season has ended. So we we never get the extremes of the night and day, uh, which is really kind of disheartening because it would be really kind of, you know, an experience to sort of get that 11 o'clock sunset. Though Michigan, in fairness, was not too far off sometimes. Uh, It was certainly a lot different Mm -hmm. than where I live now. As we kind of were like about, about 10 minutes left, which is enough time for several more of my dumb questions, but one of the, <laughs> no one questions of the things, your questions thank are you. brilliant. Thank you. Oh, that's, the check is in the mail. You know, uh, <laughs> one of the things like in the last 10 years, when I've talked to Norse pagans and I've talked to heathens is a lot of them express anger and dismay over the release of the Marvel Thor movies because they say it does not depict the gods properly. And also it just brings people to Norse paganism who probably just want to worship comic books. Do you had any sort of weird experiences with people who come uh, to Norse paganism through the Thor movies? Or do you think that people are just kind of making a big deal about nothing? I mean, I think that it's kind of really, um, uh, like, I think there's almost a sort of self-selection process that happens that, like, I've definitely met people and talked to people that were like, yeah, my first exposure to the Norse gods was watching uh, Marvel's Thor um, or reading the Thor comic books and being like, wait, this used to be a thing. Um, But I think that it kind of is more a thing that serves as, like, you know, that first point of contact. Um, and you know, it's not a bad point of contact when your marketing department is like Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston and you don't have to pay for it. I'm not going to complain. Um, right. I have often wondered if Ari's going to throw Wicca away over the, the Hiddle, like not the, well, both of them, the Hiddleston and the Hemsworth (laughs) effect. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it doesn't hurt. I mean, I'd imagine there was also similar stuff going on in like the late nineties, early two thousands when like Buffy and Charmed were in their heyday. Um, and I experienced like some of that as well, like, you know, starting on San Diego. So it was, I mean, I think that it's mostly harmless. I mean, as long as people are aware that Loki is not Tom Hiddleston, 
unless, you know, proven otherwise. Like, if it turns out that Tom Hilston actually has, like, a secret shrine to Loki somewhere, then I'm sure that, like, the squeeing of fans would, like, halt the Earth for about five seconds. Um, the squeeing of Jason would halt the Earth for five seconds. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, I mean, people come through it through that, they come through it through metal, they come through it through, like, you know, sometimes, like, video games or watching, like, the Vikings series on the History Channel, which, like, honestly, I cringe more over that than Marvel because Marvel is like, yeah, this is a movie about a comic book inspired by Norse mythology. We're not pretending it's anything otherwise, whereas, like, you know, the Vikings on History Channel actually says it's historically accurate and that it does things like bald, gold-painted priests where the fuck does that come from? Um, are like that? Like we have no evidence of that. Where's this coming but from? You bring up Tom Hiddleston, and I would be remiss if I don't talk to you for a little bit about Loki. So many years ago, like what three or four years ago, we were at a ritual together that you put together at Mini Gods West, and you asked me to do Loki while we were there. That was the second time in two or three years that I had been asked to play Loki. I don't know what that says about me. But in the middle of that ritual, I had a pretty genuine spiritual experience. Uh, where Obviously, the story that most people know about Loki is that he kind of manipulates things and kills Aldar with mistletoe. And at the end of that little bit that we reenacted, I remember, like, sobbing and saying, I did not mean for it to happen. And that was Loki saying, I did not mean for it to happen. It was just supposed to be a trick. And, you know, it wasn't supposed to result in his death. Last year, I was at a pagan festival, and I ran into a heathen group, and they were very welcoming, and they said, you know, come join our blot and, you know, drink with us and toast to the gods. And I love doing all these kind of different pagan things. And I actually shared a toast for Loki and their faces like turned ashen and they were not happy that I did. So what is Loki acceptable in heathen circles or is Loki not acceptable in heathen circles? I mean, that that's its own like debate. Uh, aside from, but also in some places, intersects with the one about racism, though not always. And it's it really depends. Like, with me and what's in my book and in, you know, the group that, and, like, the community that we're building around it, Loki's totally cool. Like, Loki is responsible for things like Thor having his hammer or building the great like fortifications that descend Asgard from uh, the Jotun and all these other, and like Odin's horse slave hand um, and all these other things that are just absolutely essential to the gods. And like in my interpretation, or at least my read anyway, Loki pretty consistently has a logic of there is a shiny red button, therefore it must be pushed. And if pushing the red button makes something break, then I'll fix the thing that broke. But red buttons were there to be pushed. Um, and you get 
another like interpretation which kind of leans pretty heavily into like particularly like Snorri Sturluson, who's one of the sources that we have of the original mythology, but also like kind of a tendency of people to like project what they're used to from Christianity onto Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. And for people that tend to do that, it's really easy to make Loki into like a stand in Satan kind of figure. Right. Um, and I think that's part of where that tendency comes from is that people want their, um, you know, like there still is that tendency of people want to have that like scapegoat. They want to have the evil thing they can blame for things going wrong, but you know, there really isn't an equivalent to that in Norse mythology, in my opinion, like, I mean, really, if you're going to put, like, say, Loki and Odin side by side, who are both massive trickster deities, Odin be only one of the two who's actually, like, broken his word in the lore. Like, Loki has never broken his word. That's never broken their word. Like, they've broken things, but, you know. But not their word. They're going to be... Exactly. I mean, at, right. at their worst, they're kind of more like the Joker, and the Joker doesn't lie. <laughs> He's just a psychopathic clown. Um, Well, you know this as a historian, but a lot of people don't really know this. Like, most of the stories that we have of the Norse gods were written after Christianization, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're not... We don't really know exactly what was in the original stories. Like, we've got a reasonable idea of what, like, the common tendencies were. Like, we see, um, like, you know, Thor consistently comes up as sort of a protector deity who's associated with strongly working people, Odin as sort of like the endless wanderer, um, always wriggling for wisdom, and Loki as sort of the trickster figure. But, like, the specifics, like, some of them have definitely been lost to time because there's I mean we were talking about like this was originally an oral tradition and a lot of this stuff was not written down or documented Um, some of it was also probably very deliberately destroyed because we do have some newer like research that's been done particularly in like say the Roman world but also to an extent in the northern world as well that part of the Christian conversion process involved the destruction of pagan temples and libraries and materials. So, um, so I, there is definitely an element of that as well. And then, like some of the sources we do have, there's a degree of Christian influence. But I think there's still like enough to work with as well. Stuff that survived in folklore to put together a pretty good picture. Of at least the broad strength. I just always wonder if like Loki's getting a bad rap because of some of that Christian influence for whatever reason. Oh, uh, I think. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think probably like the worst offender when it comes to that is Snorri Sturluson, who on one hand is why we have a lot of what we know about the mythology, but he's also the one who tends to try to slot the gods and the Norse gods into like 
either something that works in a Christian framework or something that looks at least vaguely similar to like a Greek or Roman framework. So Snorri kind of made a hash of things a little bit, but we do have like, the other material left to work with. We do the best that we can with what we've got. Ryan, I want to thank you for being on the show tonight. You're a really great guest. This was really fun. And, God, I didn't even talk to you about heavy metal with you. That Oh, shit. Uh, like the <laughs> Loki, the, the Loki, I had it, like, on the agenda, and then the Loki left turn took longer than I thought it would. And I guess that's his, you know, trickster nature. Uh, he, he wants yeah. you to come back so we can talk about things <laughs> like green lung. So that no one else will have any idea about what we're saying. Um, if people want to learn oh, yeah. more about you online, where can they go? Um, so I have a website on blackwings.com. Um, you can also look for The Way of Fire and Ice on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group and a fan page um, and have been regularly offering uh, classes and ritual online. Um particularly tailored to being in this time of COVID. Um, We actually do have one big ritual that's coming up on October 25th, nine days before the election, where we will be holding ritual uh, calling for the victory over fascism and both on November 3rd and beyond. Um, Damn straight. Absolutely. And... Oh, and for those who may be looking for more material, I'm uh, under uh, officially going to be also releasing a book by mid-2022-ish on all the stuff about faith, the world tree, the dwarves, and anything you're afraid to ask about, all the movie stuff. I love how far, like, out books are. This will be out in 2022. Yeah. It's, it's being an author is <laughs> yeah. hard sometimes. Oh yeah. Uh, you got a book. Like, like years. <laughs> no, like I wanted to. I'm like, by the time your book comes out, you've forgotten you've written it. <laughs> the book is "The Way of Fire and Ice: The Living Tradition of Norse Paganism." My guest tonight has been Ryan Smith. I love Ryan. I love his work. If you're interested in Norse paganism, this is the book to buy. It really is. I don't just say that because somebody's a guest on my show. It's the truth. That's just how it goes. I'm Jason. You've been listening to Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. Should be back live next week. I don't know who my guest is because it's Samhain time and my life has been busy and I've not scheduled very well. But uh, thank you all for listening tonight. This has been a really great show. We will see you next time. Make sure you go out and vote. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.